Please remain standing as we read from God's word. Uh, We'll be reading 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, page 952 in the Pew Bible. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to see you on a beautiful February day. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are beginning a new study of the book of 1 Corinthians as we looked at this beautiful mess we call the church and all that God is doing in it. Mahatma Gandhi said that his life and his way of life was influenced primarily and foremost by the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And yet, he never seriously considered becoming a Christian, not because of Christ, but because of Christians. When he was a younger man, he was traveling through Europe, and Christian hotel owners and restaurant owners would not let him stay in their hotels or eat at their restaurants because he was a Hindu. One time, he visited a church, and he was escorted out because he was white. And so it is no surprise that he is reported as saying, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so much unlike your Christ. And of course, many of you would say the same thing. Uh, The church today has done very little to improve its image uh, since those days, Uh, besides the numerous scandals. I mean, you know, you never know what new scandal is going to break on the news about the church, Uh, sex scandals, abuse scandals, and so on. Uh, People have had their own personal negative experiences in the church. In fact, I would hesitate to even have you raise your hand to ask if you've ever had a negative experience in the church because, well, if you haven't, Welcome for your first time here at Village 7. Um, uh, We all have had those negative experiences. You've gone to churches and you've experienced the cliques. You've experienced the, uh, the, the power struggles, the fights, the squabbles, the, the judgmental spirits, the self-righteous uh, uh, spirits, the, those who have that discernment, you know, that gift of discernment that need to point out to you everything that is wrong about you or about uh, the church. And in response, uh, what some people do, respond to this different ways. Some uh, would give up on Christianity altogether. Some would uh, go to a church for a while, and it's, a, and it's a really good church, and it's like, finally, we found a good Bible church, just, just like, like, like it's supposed to be. And then they're there for a while, and then they begin to see its flaws, and they say, this church is so unlike how it's supposed to be in the New Testament. And they'll, they'll leave, and they'll go to a new, new church, and I'll meet them sometimes in our new members class. People say, oh, I'm so, this is so refreshing. It's so unlike my old church, and I cringe. 
Wait till you get to know us. As I often say, if I have not offended you yet, it's only because we don't know each other. And, um, and so it's going to happen, right? And so then they'll go to a church, a new church, and it's good for a while, uh, but then the flaws show up, they go to another one, and then another one, and then another one. And so because of that, some people have just given up on church. So why do we need church? Why can't I just get together a few of my friends, and that way I don't have to put up with all the annoying people at church, all those hypocritical people. I can just get a group of my friends. We can do life together, because that sounds so good, and we're going to do life together and encourage one another. And, uh, you know, the church is such a mess. Why bother? Why bother? And uh, you may be asking that today. You may even think, why am I here? I'm I'm afraid of what I'm going to get into. I'm afraid of what it's going to be like. And, um, and you're afraid uh, of what might happen to you. Well, today we begin a, a new series, as I mentioned, in 1 Corinthians. And interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He, we have another letter that we don't know where it is. It's lost. So this is 2 Corinthians, but it's confusing because it's, we only have two. So long story. We'll go there now. Uh, but Corinthians was written to the church in the city of Corinth, which is in southern Greece, And Paul writes to this church, and this church is the ideal church. It is the ideal church. Uh, It has cliques, divisions, divorces, lawsuits, sexual immorality, a man sleeping with his father's wife, divorce, idol worship, syncretism, chaos in his worship service, false teaching, self-righteousness, judgmental spirit, the rich are humiliating the poor, and people are getting drunk at communion. You know, your typical church. And... um, and that's the church of Corinth. And we know this because all of this stuff is addressed in this letter. Um, yet despite all of this, did you notice, as Monica read that, how Paul speaks about this church? He speaks about this church with, with a very genuine sense of love and affection. I mean, he clearly adores these people. He, he, he believes that they're beautiful in spite of all that, and he's not just closing his eyes, he's going to address all of that. He, he, he honestly adores them, and the question is, you know, how can he delight in such a messed up church? And, and relatedly, relatedly, what would it take for God to delight in you the way Paul delights in them? Because as Paul opens this letter, remember, he's not speaking on his own authority. Paul in verse 1 says that, that he is speaking as an apostle by the will of God. So what he is saying is God's word. It's not just Paul's word. It is God's word about this messed up church. And, uh, and so if you want to know what you have to do for God to think of you this way, we know. Paul tells us. He doesn't leave us guessing. We find it in these verses, and he tells us in verse 2, which is really where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. In verse 2, Paul says that those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus are sanctified saints. Sanctified saints. Now, look again at verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Now, that word sanctified means to be made holy. It is a definitive act, something that's happened in the past that is now uh, true in the present. That is, that these people, 
These people that we just told you about, these messed up people are sanctified. Uh, this is a definitive sanctification. So for those of you who love theology, um, the, the rest of you, you can ignore this part. Uh, there's a difference between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification takes place at the moment you become a Christian. God says you are holy, you are justified, you're righteous. And the progressive sanctification is that process in life where we grow more and more conformed to the image of God. But here he's emphasizing that definitive aspect. They are holy. God has made them holy. And then just to double down on this, he then calls them saints. Now, saints, we typically think of a saint as a really, really good Christian, someone who's doing uh, extra good works, some very special. Well, the Apostle Paul uses the term saints to address all those whom he says, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the word saints means holy ones. And so he's calling us sanctified saints. And so that raises a question. How in the world can Paul call these people whom we just described as sanctified saints? How can he say in any sense of the word that they are holy? Well, the German pastor theologian Martin Luther helps us out with this. Uh, he, he helps us understand Paul because he takes Paul's ideas and he's, he condensed them down to a single phrase in Latin and it is this, for all you Latin scholars, TCA, ECA students and others, uh, it is this, simul justus et peccator. And so let me help you with that. So simul is uh, like simultaneously. So at the same time, justus, like just, justified, righteous. So simultaneously righteous et et tu brute, you know, and, uh, and peccator, which means sinful. So they are simultaneously righteous and sinners, simultaneously saints and sinners. And so uh, we see that, that we are truly, you know, we, we continue to sin. Even after a person becomes a Christian, we know this both experientially and we know it from scripture, uh, we continue to sin. Paul himself says in Romans 7, Here's Paul, he's, he's a Christian, he's born again, he's an apostle, and he says, the law of God is good, I wanna do that stuff, but I find that I do not do what I want to do, and then I find myself doing the things I don't wanna do. And so he says, even as a Christian, I continue to struggle with sin, and so in that sense, we are sinners. Yet, yet interestingly, despite the fact that we continue to sin, the New Testament does not ascribe that to us as our core identity. Uh, we continue to sin, but we have a new nature. It, it, you know, when you became a Christian, you don't, it's not like you kept your sinful nature and now you have a, a, a holy nature and you have two natures. There's only one person in the universe who has two natures and that is Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man. You're not Jesus, you only have one nature. You've been born again, you're a new creation. Now that new nature continues to struggle with sin but you are new. You have a new heart. God did a heart transplant on you. He took out the heart of stone. He put in a heart of flesh. You're a new person, a new creation. You've been born again. And so because of that, your core identity, your core identity is that of a saint. In fact, um, uh, if you go through the New Testament, here's some of the ways that the New Testament addresses the people of God. They're called the elect, faithful brothers, beloved children of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, 
And most of all, the most common word used to give, given to Christians is that of saints. Michael Kruger, president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, and the only reason I say that is because some of you will dismiss him when I say what he's about to say, Reformed Theological Seminary president, Michael Kruger, he says this, conspicuously absent in the list of the terms used to describe Christians is the term sinners. Kruger goes on to say, there's no place I'm aware of where the church, the people of God, are collectively called sinners. The only place where an individual believer is called a sinner is in 1 Timothy 1.15, where the apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And even there, and it is a present tense, I am the chief of sinners, but even there he's talking about the context of the things he used to do. Now, Paul is not denying that we as Christians sin. He is not naive about who we are and what we do. I mean, he's about to write 16 chapters on sin, so he's not naive about this. But he says, your core identity, who we are, is we are saints. Now, that raises a question. Because experientially, I feel conflict here. Paul says, I am a saint. You are a saint. You are your identity, individually. You are sanctified in Christ if you've called on the name of Jesus. But I know I, I sin, right? And frankly, I know this about you too. I know you. So, so you sin too. So, so how can Paul say we're saints uh, when clearly we continue to sin? And the key to that is again in verse 2. It's a, a very common phrase that is there, and it is so common in the New Testament that you often read over it. And so look at it again. He says these messed up Christians in Corinth, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ Jesus. They are not holy in themselves. They are holy because they are in Christ. The Apostle Paul uses this term, this, this phrase, in Christ, in him, in Jesus Christ, in whom, something of that sort, 160 times in the New Testament. That should tell you something of its importance. 160 times he talks about who we are in terms of our union with Christ. And so he says that we are in vital union with Christ, that Christ is in me and I am in him and we are united together. And the Bible uses a number of different analogies of this. So Jesus would say this, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And so what that means is you're vitally connected to Jesus. You're, you're part of him. You share in him and you get your life from him. Uh, other analogies that Paul uses, he says, we're like the body of Christ and we're each different parts. You might be an eye, uh, you might be the little finger, you might be the big toe, you know, the ear, whatever. You're part of the body. You're united to him. You, you get your life from him. You, you share in that, you're, but there's just one body. Or the apostle Paul will say, uh, we are the temple of Christ. We together, you plural, or y'all, as it should be translated, are, are the, the temple of God. And so we're each stones in that temple. We share in him. Or he'll say, uh, we're in Christ, and he'll talk about how we are robed in Christ. We are clothed in Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. And so just as I am uh, in these clothings, I am in them, Paul says, I am in Christ. Uh, another analogy he uses in Ephesians 5. He says that we are united to Christ in the same way that a husband and wife are united in marriage. And, uh, and this is one I think that helps me understand it, uh, except 
the union of uh, the Christian to Christ is even more vital and more intimate than a husband and wife. But think of it this way. Um, you have two people get married, and, and one person has tens of thousands of dollars worth of school debt. The other person has a last name named Gates, as in Bill. And, and these two people get married. They each bring what they have to the relationship. And, and so now, what belongs to the one belongs to the other. And so when we are united to Christ, we come and we bring our sin. And so our sin now becomes Christ's sin. It is really his sin. He, and so Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus truly became sinful with our sin through this union. We're so united to him, our sin is now his sin. Our debt is now his debt. And at the same time, we're so united to Christ that his body now belongs to us. And whatever Jesus did in his body now can rightfully be said of us because his body is our body. So when Jesus died on the cross and his body paid the penalty of sin, because we're united to Christ, we can say, like Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, and a, a number of years ago, I was talking, actually right here in this room, there's an imam, we were having a, a discussion about Christianity and, and uh, Islam. And the imam said, your Christianity doesn't make sense. You say that, that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, but if I were to commit a murder, I would go to jail. And if you were to come to the judge and say, judge, let me take his place and put me in jail instead, what would the judge say? No, of course not. That's unjust. I have to pay the penalty and only I can pay the penalty. Uh, and, and you get his point. But Christianity doesn't merely say that Jesus is our substitute. It says that we are united to Christ. And so when Jesus went to the cross, we went to the cross in a very real sense because that is our body. Think of, um, some of you uh, may know the old uh, spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? And the answer that the apostle Paul gives is, yes, you're in Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have now ascended with Christ. He speaks of all these things because you are in Christ. We're united to him. And so, so because of that, because of our union with Christ, uh, now we see how the Apostle Paul looks at the Corinthians. He's, he's not looking at them based on what they're doing. He sees them through the lens of grace rather than through the lens of works. He sees them through the lens of what Christ has done rather than through the lens of what, of what they have done. And so that is how we're to see our, ourselves. He says that the, the lens of, of works says you're, you are what you do. Your value is based on what you do. In fact, you can illustrate it this way, um, a little diagram, I think. It says my worth equals my performance over my expectations. That all of us operate in some way on this. How I feel about myself is how we'll, well I think I'm doing based on my expectations of how I think I should do. So if you're a golfer and you've never shot under 100 and you shoot a 99, you are awesome. If you're Tiger Woods and you shoot a 99, you are terrible. And so it all depends on expectations, right? But the problem with this is that's a false standard. That's not the real standard. What's the standard? 
The standard is not my performance over my expectations. The true standard is my performance over God's law. See, we, we, we've dumbed it down. We said uh, the, the standard that God says is you're to be holy even as I am holy. You're to be perfect even as I am perfect. But we can't keep that standard. So what do we do? We lower the bar to a bar we can keep. And, and, and so oftentimes it's my expectations. How do I determine my expectations? I determine my expectations by comparing myself to you. And so, and you determine your expectations by comparing yourself, and we compare ourselves to one another. And so, if I'm doing well, I feel good. And so, we have these generally accepted behavioral standards for about the basic requirements of what an evangelical Christian should do. And as long as I'm keeping those requirements, I feel good. And if I'm not keeping those requirements, I feel bad. Or even more, as long as I'm doing better than you, I'm doing good, right? Uh, and and, and, and you see the, the falseness of that standard. You know, uh, you ever heard the, um, the old joke, hate jokes, but I'm going to tell it anyway, is um, the old joke about the two men are going through the woods and they're being stalked by a mountain lion. So one of the men stops to put on his running shoes and the other guy says, hey, look, you can't outrun that mountain lion. He goes, well, I know that. I just have to outrun you, you know? Uh, so, you know. And, uh, and I think that's what we do with our standards of holiness. You know, I don't have to be holy. I don't have to be perfect. Well, God says you do. God says you have to be perfect. And so what happens, though, in our union with Christ, that standard is met. So instead of uh, my worth equals my performance, uh, my worth then equals Christ's performance. My value does not come from what I do, but because I am now united to Christ. I'm now united to Christ. His record is mine. My sin became his. His righteousness has become mine. Uh, and, uh, and so now we are, we are robed in, in the, his beauty. And so when God looks at you, the analogy often uh, used in Old Testament, New Testament, is that he, he's taken off your robe of sin, stripped you of it, and your sin has been taken away. And so when Jesus died on the cross, your penalty has been paid in full so that God can say about you, Christian, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned at all. You are free of that. You are now, uh, and, but see, that's only half. If you take off your sin, your robe of sin, you're still naked. You need something else, right? And so God gives to you the robe of Christ's righteousness. And so now credited to you is everything Jesus has done in his righteousness so that when the Father looks at you, he sees you robed in the righteousness of the Son and he delights in you. I mean, he just, he just delights in you. I, I have a sister, only one sister, and um, uh, when we were little, sometimes when she would walk into the family room, my dad would be sitting there on the couch and he'd start singing. He'd go, there she is. Miss America, last time I'll ever sing for you. Um, and he'd sing that to her. He never sang that when I walked into the room. And um, I, I have my own issues talking to a counselor about that. But, uh, but the, the obvious thing was my father just delighted in her. I mean, he just delighted in her. Christian, the father delights in you. He really does. I mean, I know you don't believe this, because what you're doing is you're looking at yourself through the lens of works rather than the lens of grace. You're forgetting your union with Christ. You're forgetting that you really are a sanctified saint. 
And so the father, when you walk into the room, he sings. Uh, this verse that's hidden away in the minor prophets, the prophet Zephaniah, beautiful verse, says this, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine that? I mean, every time I read that, I, I try to imagine, I try to imagine what does God singing sound like? I, I mean, we heard beautiful music today, but, but this, is, this is better. God's singing over you. And so this is, this is who you are, Christian. This is your identity in Christ. You, you, are, uh, uh, you are the Holy One of God. You're a sanctified saint. Now, we're going to talk about this more later because definitively you're a sanctified saint. Therefore, we are to live progressively die more and more to sin, live more and more to righteousness. But Paul's point is, and God's point to you, when God calls us to holy living, he's not saying, okay, I know that the way you want to be is sinful and disobedient and rebellious, but I'm going to ask you to live contrary to your nature. That's not what he's doing. When God calls us to holy living, he's saying, be who you are. Live according to your new identity. Now, you are a new creation you have a new heart. God has given you a heart transplant. You are not who you were. Live like who you are. There's an old story, uh, probably apocryphal, about uh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was uh, an African from northern Africa. He was a bishop, very famous scholar and, and uh, pastor. Well, uh, Augustine, before he was converted, was a pretty wild man, uh, to say the least. And and uh, then he got converted, and, and after a while, God just radically changed his life. Well, one time, according to the story, he's walking through town, and one of his old mistresses sees him. And he sees her, and he starts walking the other way. And, uh, and so she calls out, Augustine, Augustine. He just keeps walking. She goes, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he turns around and says to her, yes, but it is not I. He's not the same man. He's united to Christ. You are not who you were. Live like who you are. Live like who you are. And Paul will spend the rest of the letter on that. Well, not only should we see ourselves as God see us, sees us, but we should also see the church as God sees it as well. Uh, if our, your identity is a sanctified saint, then our identity, our identity is as sanctified saints. So what's true of you is also true of everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord. Look again at verse 2. He says that he calls them saints together with all those in every place calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He's saying this. He goes, before you, you get on your high horse about I am holy, remember, remember all those other people in the church with you? Same thing. They're holy people too. Uh, now, if you read again all the way through this letter and you see just how messed up this church is, you're, you're left asking, how does, you know, why? Why does Paul stick with these people? Like, why not just go start another church, right? Um, even more importantly, why does God stick with them? I think most of us would quit on a church like this. And we justify it by saying the church is full of hypocrites. You know, you don't need church to worship God. 
I can worship God anywhere. And we would come up with all those things that many of us have said or heard or thought. But if you do that, you're robbing yourself of an experience, of an opportunity to experience God's grace that you cannot experience anywhere else other than in the messed up church. It is in the messed up church that that, that we get to experience God's grace. That's because the grace and acceptance of God can only be tangible to us when we experience it in the messiness of the church. See, by ourselves, you know, I, I can read and I can talk about and I read a lot and, and about God's grace and God's love and it's all up here in my head. Uh, for it to be real, it has to be tangible. Uh, we have to understand that if God loves and accepts us because we're in Christ, that others will love us and accept us because we are in Christ. And once you see that you're loved and accepted by others, not because of your performance, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf, then the love of God becomes believable to you. And by the way, that is also true for everyone you're sitting around. Oftentimes we come into church and we think about how we need that love of the others and we forget everybody you're sitting by feels exactly the same way. Every single one. You know, God uh, loves his people. And as he reaches out and loves his people, one of the things we have to remember is that the arms of God that God uses to hug his people are attached to your shoulders. And so God calls us to love one another. Oftentimes we reject the church or we despise the church because it's messed up. Or even worse, because the church is so judgmental. And again, my guess is many of you have experienced that, or many of us, right, uh, have experienced that judgmentalism. Uh, yet when we reject the church because it's full of hypocrites or because it's judgmental, uh, we're simply doing the very thing we condemn. We're judging them for judging. We're practicing our own judgmentalism and we're condemning them on that same basis. But if God loves and accepts us because we are in Christ, then our basis for loving and accepting others in the church must be because they are in Christ. You you know, you can't take grace for yourself and say, I'm gonna be judged by God on the basis of grace and then judge everybody else on the basis of works. Now, Now, again, that doesn't mean we leave sin unchallenged. Paul is gonna spend 16 chapters challenging sin. He's even going to tell them to kick somebody out of the church. So, So it doesn't mean there's no discipline in this. But the point is, he begins here. He begins with who our identity is and that we embrace one another, we see one another as those who are in Christ. And so we, we l- must look at one another through the lens of grace rather than the lens of works. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, my brother or sister is that other person who has been redeemed by Christ, absolved from sin and called to faith and eternal life. What persons are in themselves as Christians and their inwardness and piety cannot constitute the basis of our community. Our community consists solely, uh, excuse me, our community consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. So my community and our fellowship with one another is not based on what the other one does, it's based solely on what Christ has done for each of us. And by loving and accepting those whom we judge unworthy, uh, we get to practice the gospel and remind ourselves that God loves us even though we are unworthy. 
If you only love others and associate with others as they measure up to your own standards, you're in a sense denying the gospel. So the gospel then is not only the basis for how we relate to God, it's the basis for how we relate to one another. That is, your fellowship with others is not based on their performance any more than your fellowship with Christ is based on your performance. Again, as brothers and sisters, we deal with our sin. We repent, we confess, we confront when necessary. But we treat one another out of love, out of the lens of grace, not out of the lens of works. Now here's where the messiness of the church can be the source of its most vibrant witness. As we've been saying all year, uh, and, and uh, Steve mentioned earlier, uh, we're for the city. We're not just a church that is in Colorado Springs, but biblically speaking, God has called us not simply to live here, but to be for here. We are blessed to be a blessing. Uh, from, we've seen this from Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible. We are people on mission. And as we seek to love our city and to, to be a witness to the city, one of the things that, well, the thing, the only thing we're testifying to is God's amazing love. We want them to know that God loves and accepts us, not on the basis of our works and our performance, but God loves us and accepts us based on grace that we find through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We want them to know that Jesus loves broken and sinful people, and we are example, exhibit A of that, that he loves us as broken and sinful people, and if he loves us, he can love them too, and they can find forgiveness in him as well. But how will they believe that unless we're able to love one another and unless we're able to love them and their sin and their brokenness as well. Uh, there's a business expression that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that means the culture of an organization will always be the thing that, 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 that controls the effectiveness of that organization far more than its business strategy. The same thing can be said of the church. Culture eats theology for breakfast. We can preach grace, talk about grace, uh, talk about uh, you know, how, how we're, we're justified by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we can preach that till the cows come home. But it will not be believable. It will not be believable unless the culture of the church exhibits that very same thing. When we're able to love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, uh, all of these things that the Apostle Paul and actually Christ, through Paul, encourages us to do. It's by loving sinful people, embracing those who are annoying, those who are very different from you, uh, those who have uh, radically different political ideas from you, those who, uh, whose lifestyles, whom, uh, whom you might not uh, embrace, lifestyles that may actually even be wrong, uh, as we embrace them in the love of Christ. And show them that the love of Christ is real and genuine. Uh, and, and even by delighting those who, frankly, just don't seem all that delightful. When we do those things, then our city will see that our message is true. And here's why we need the messy church. A, a church full of fully progressively sanctified saints. <laughs> those who are already made perfect would be a terrible witness to the world. Because the message it would send is, is in order to be loved by God, you've got to have it together. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you, you don't have it together. And yet Christ died for those who are sinful and need a Savior. And when we live that out, 
when we live that out, the world will know. Christian, you are a saint. You're a sanctified saint. And so are those around you who are in Christ. And because we receive it all by grace, we can love one another and we can love our broken world as well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of the gospel, even though it, it, uh, it's like a wrecking ball to our, our view of ourselves because we so want to build our reputation, our worth, our value on our performance. And we see that the gospel just destroys that, that we have nothing in our hand or bring, nothing except to your cross do we cling because we have nothing to offer you but Christ. But even as we said earlier in the worship service, but we have Christ. And so, Lord, may we rejoice in that and may the world know, may the world know that you're a God who loves sinners so much that Christ died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.